Welcome back to Word and Table, a weekly podcast on liturgy, sacraments, and the great tradition of Christian worship, and why it is vital in our world today. I'm your host, Alex Wilgus, and I am here, as always, with Father Stephen Gauthier. Welcome back, Father Stephen. Uh, Great to be back, Alex. Father Stephen is the canon theologian of the Diocese of the Upper Midwest in the Anglican Church in North America, and he is Director of Formation at St. Paul's House of Formation in the Greenhouse Movement. Uh, Father Stephen, today we're going to talk about another book of the Bible. I, we haven't done a book of the Bible in a no, little too while. Long, too long. Yeah, but it's I, I've heard it's kind of an important book, so I thought we should return to it. Um, and in particular, the Epistle of James. Now, the Epistle of James for me, you know, I grew up uh, as a good evangelical, knowing that I was saved by faith in Jesus Christ and, and not as by As you words, are. <laughs> lest any man should boast, exactly. Um but then I, I always got a little concerned when I'd go over to James, and it he he said, "Well, didn't you know that faith without works is dead? And show you if if you think you can show me your faith apart from your works, then then I'll show you my faith by my works." And it created a bit of a puzzle for me. That I hope that we could get into today on today's episode. Oh, absolutely. But uh, let's begin with the Epistle of James, though. First, let's go through it as we as we normally do. Um, Tell me just yeah in the broad strokes what is the what is the epistle of James we'll go into its background how it was included into the canon before moving on to key topics and themes so we'll we'll begin there okay well the author you say well which James uh, we have a wealth of Jameses in the New Testament we have of course uh, James the son of Zebedee right who's John's brother uh, we sometimes call him James the Greater okay. And we also have James, son of Alphaeus, who's also one of the apostles. And we have another James uh, called Brother of the Lord. And probably the reason we use that title is to distinguish him from the other two. You know, when you have multiple James, you have to say, which one am I talking about? So one of the reasons he seems to, uh, to get that title is because we have to distinguish him from the other two. So what we're talking about here is the author of the epistle would be James, Brother of the Lord, who is leader of the Church of Jerusalem. Um, and also, uh, the time of this would be very early. It's about 62. We know that James dies in 62. And mm-hmm. so it would have to be written before that. Now, the recipients are to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And these are basically Christians seeing the new, we, you know, the diaspora is Jews who were just scattered over the world outside the Holy Land. So right. he compares to these, these Christians who are spread throughout the empire as being sort of a Christian diaspora. So he's saying, you know, to the, to, the, the, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, okay. And it's so classically Jewish. I mean, this is an extremely Jewish work. It has that Old Testament feel to it. That's why it's a lot of advice. It's like sitting with a Jewish uncle, you know, in a, in a delicatessen getting advice. <laughs> uh, a lot of imperatives. Make sure to do this. Don't that. It's a lot of advice. Yeah, you know, between so the gefilte fish, yeah, it's uh, it's. <laughs> it's just wisdom for you, my son. Yeah, it's very, very yeah. much a wisdom book. Now, it had a tough sliding getting into the canon. You know, basically, there are the things is James, Hebrews, Second Peter, Jude, and Revelation were the books that took had debate on them. In the end, we come to a complete consensus, universal on them, but they had some some sliding. And one of the reasons was that typically when the canon, there were three things people were looking for. Is there a connection with an apostle? Either the apostle himself wrote it or one of his disciples, like Mark's gospel. Mark was the secretary for Peter. 
So their connection with Peter. Uh, Luke is connected with Paul. Okay, uh, acceptance. You know, the people, you know, do other church see, see this as the word of God. And then is it consistent? Does it give us basically the, um, the same story? Is it really consistent with the doctrine we see elsewhere in the other books? And the case of the only thing in the question of, of James was acceptance, because some of the Western churches um, didn't know about James. The East was not a problem, it was in some of the Western churches. But by the fourth century, no one disagrees. Later on, Luther goes back to this and tries to say, hey, maybe we should look at this again. <laughs> okay, way later on, right? Way, way later on. <laughs> but even he gets off that. The problem isn't James. It's a misunderstanding of James that leads to this understanding there's some conflict between Paul and James. There's none. I see, I see. Okay, so that, that's, the, that's the faith and work things. The we'll, faith and work we'll, thing, We'll yeah. get into, okay. Well, we'll get into that. So, so tell me about what are, what are the key, you know, um, peaks or topics that, that James is addressing here? Well, one thing he starts out with trials and temptations. So he starts out with trials. He said, you know, you should rejoice in your trials, not just put up with them, rejoice, because they actually lead somewhere. He said, think about it. the only way it's like an athlete, you know, when you, you know, no pain, no gain. He's saying trials lead to endurance mm. and endurance is what you need to get the crown of life. So he's not talking about earning or something. It's just the fact Paul has very similar types of things. You know, we, yeah, Paul says almost the same thing, same right? thing. So yeah. he's saying, yeah. So he said, this is actually serves a purpose. So we shouldn't be confused saying, you know, why this is again, if you're, if you're doing athletic training or something, you know that it's going to take some work. You're going to, you're going to have some sore muscles and you're going to be huffing a lot, you know, as you, as you build, as you build up. And so the idea is trial produces endurance and brings to a crown of life. And he said, you know, patience, he said, look at this. Every farmer knows that, you know, the rains have to come before harvest. If you ever got any rain, you wouldn't have much of a crop. So he's saying, you know, yeah. <laughs> I love that. Isn't that a great analogy? Sure. Uh, I remember once as a kid in school having saying, you know, all sunshine makes a desert. We had these little pious mottos they put mm -hmm. up every week. And I remember having all sunshine makes a desert. And he says, look at the prophets. He said, you know, they went through hard times. But at the end of the day, we look back and we honor them because, you know, they were right. And then he took the example of Job. And he says, Job was vindicated by God in the end. But then being a very Jewish book, he says, now we can't do anything that would get God giving a bad reputation. And I'm not saying that God leads you into temptation. So where does temptation come from? Well, he does sort of the opposite. He says, you know, where temptation actually comes from is us. We're the source of temptation, ultimately, because of our dis disordered desires. It's mm -hmm. our disordered desires that lead to sin, and sin leads to death. So he's saying, basically, you know, our temptations are coming from us. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Now, that's true. The enemy can use them, you know, but the, the point is it's not God. God doesn't tempt us, he says, you know, but, you know, the enemy can use those things. And so he talks about, uh, he says, I love he gives these keys. How do you succeed? Again, to be Jewish, it has to give us good advice. What do you do? Okay, now that we've talked about the theory, what do you do? Right, what's the, what's the practicals? Yeah, hello here. What do we do? And he says, well, first of all, resist the devil and he will flee you. He said, you understand the sort of a paper tiger. If you stand up to him, you know, he will go away. And he said, it's not just a matter of resisting the devil. You resist him by drawing near to God. He says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So yeah. the answer is when you get to the near devil, what do you do? Do you flee? If you find yourself far from God, what do you do? You run towards him. I love that, the opposition. Mm, a very yeah, Jewish yeah, yeah. thing is two ways. The, you know, the way of life, the way of death. So he said, yeah, remember, see the devil run away. You find yourself, where's God? Run towards him. 
Then he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. He's um, saying make sure that, uh, you know, it's basically repentance. But he's saying purify your hearts, double-minded, is when we talked about the pure of hearts, I think we talked once about uh, the Beatitudes. Mm-hmm. And with the pure of heart, what it means is single-minded. It means people who know what they want. You know, you really figured out, what's my priority? And he's saying, you basically get one priority. He starts, like, I, like um, when we have Elijah saying, stop limping between two opinions. What is it? <laughs> one, <laughs> be hot or don't be hot, uh, be hot or cold, not lukewarm. Yeah, book of Revelation. Right? Yeah. A constant theme. So he's saying that. Make sure, you know, the biggest problem we have with is that we just haven't made up our minds. Uh, humble yourselves before God and he will exalt you. And finally, he says, don't speak against one another. You know, this is a place where we often fall into temptation. Don't speak evil against one another. So that's mm-hmm. his basic t- thing about uh, about trials and things. He said, you know, trials are good. It's like, you know, however, he said, you know, don't God doesn't lead us into temptation. You're the problem. But how do you deal with it? Don't chat with the devil. Run. You know, always move towards God. Clean up your act. You know, make sure your priorities in the right place. Humble yourself and especially be careful with your speech. Oh, that, that's beautiful. I love how um, it's it's very much, you know, this is, I guess, it, it's not that it's un theological but it's not abstract it's no. talking about look this is this is the boat you're in this is the situation you're in how do you make the best of it this is classically jewish because in uh, in jewish thought i think is always practical i mean it's, this is important actually original greek thought originally started out very much as wisdom literature mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. and later on it develops more abstractly but the original more philosophy a lover of love of wisdom was always about how do you live a better life yeah, and you, I feel like you come to a certain you, when you start coming to a certain age where you, you get I don't know you just get very tired of the sort of metaphysical or theoretical musings on things and you just want to know what to do. <laughs> you know, so what do I do? Well, if you're a soldier uh, getting ready to go into battle, you're being trained. You don't want to know about gun theory. I mean, yeah, that theory, you need to know something about a gun, but you have to uh-huh. say, you know, you know how how do I use this thing? Right, exactly, exactly. Okay, well, I'm also picking up. So this is a this is a particularly Jewish book, right? Yeah. This, um, but it's surprising though, because right, because it's in the old in the New Testament, which is the um, uh, which is the height of the Old Testament. It's the fulfillment right. of everything. Right. Well, so this is great. This is this seems like this is showing the the real continuity between, absolutely between the Old and the New Testament. Well, let's talk. Yeah, well, let's talk a little bit about um, about. Uh, some other themes that he's he he talks about here. Uh, in one verse, he says, "You know, be quick to hear and slow to speak," um, which is funny because you often it, speaking sounds like something that people often rush to. Being quick to hear is is a is a is a that's that's a good that's a good turn of phrase. But yeah, how does that reflect his? Well, his, his problem role? is our problem, according to James, is we have trouble hearing. And so he says, you know, uh, basically, how do we know? And he uses an example. You know, in the ancient world, the main reason they had mirrors, uh, they weren't very good. They were, you know, uh, polished things. They're not like our mirrors. But the reason you had mirrors was to check up, make sure you look decent, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, yep. And he Same says, imagine somebody goes to the mirror to make sure they don't have a big piece of spinach on their teeth or something. 
Yeah. And he says, they look at the mirror and they forget what they looked at. They forgot that, you know, gee, I probably should take that off of my tooth. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he says, it's like this. He says, people who listen and don't do anything about it are wasting their time. So his basic point is that we have to re- really, what does really hearing mean? Really hearing means we act on what we hear. You know, we mm-hmm. always listen. This is the difference between, uh, between hearing and listening. He's basically, listening really means we plan to do something with what we hear. We plan to act upon it. You know, it's like this. Have you been in an airport when you have all these things in the background? And, you know, all these announcements for so-and-so and come to this flight. And you hear it going. You hear right. it, but you're not paying the least bit of attention. Yeah. <laughs> now, I once, this once in my whole life, and I was a road warrior for years, you know, in business, is I heard my name come <laughs> <laughs> over the intercom. Really? Yes, I heard my uh, my name come over the intercom. And you better believe that something I said, I have to do something. There must be something wrong or they wouldn't be doing this. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, and so right away I wanted to really listen. He said, you have to always, that's real listening is when I figure out I've got to hear this because I've got to act on it. It could not possibly be just be interesting information. If they're calling my name over an airport, this is in Montreal, and over an airport, uh, airport system, uh, it means there must be something I really need to hear. They've got to communicate with me. And so this is a matter of, oh, I, I want, maybe it might be interesting. Means I've got to act on this. And boy, my sure. ears were perked. Okay. Yeah. And he says, how do we know if we've really heard? He said, can we have a hearing test? Let's go to the audiologist, the spiritual audiologist. How do I near, know if I've really heard? He said, first of all, you can know you really heard if, if you've bridled your tongue is people who truly, you know, basically can't really hear until you bridle your tongue. So he's saying, are you in control of your tongue? The odds are, if you haven't, you're probably not hearing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. The second thing he yeah. talks about, works of mercy. You know, the God's always talking about our works of mercy, of being aware of other people. If we're not engaged in works of mercy, it means we're not hearing, because there's a lot of that in the Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he said, remaining pure, another basic theme of the Bible. You know, if our life isn't, isn't, isn't good, isn't, you know, that way, isn't following a basically, you know, a sanctified life, we're not hearing, are we? Hearing sure. all, how can we tell if someone heard, what do they do? When I heard that message, you better believe I presented myself as I was expect, expected to do. I expected, mm-hmm. I, I, I presented myself right away uh, to the yeah. appropriate authorities to find out what I needed to do. You, you know that you've heard if you've gone and done what the announcement said. So, so isn't that beautiful? He says, yeah. make sure you're a hearer. But I love it. It's Jewish. Okay, how do I know I'm a hero? How do I know my hearing's okay? Well, if you're bridling your tongue, if you're doing works of mercy, remaining pure, it means you must have at least heard. That's a good start. Right. It's a very wise. Otherwise, you might be spiritually deaf. Sure, sure. (laughs) So these are kind of these are kind of ordinary sorts of everyday things, like being careful what you say and uh, being kind to those in need, uh, and also you know keeping yourself away from from impurity. You know, these are these once again very ordinary tests of having heard the gospel. You heard the gospel, and the, the, the the gospel talks about this all the time. So you're saying that's a good test. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's get into the main issue, the the faith versus works thing. I think that causes, it certainly caused me, causes uh, us evangelicals some trouble sometimes, um, especially those of us who are really have dedicated ourselves and our traditions to um, the the to the the fundamental confession that we're saved by faith, um, not by works. Um, but you said earlier that you know Paul and James here. 
are not saying different things. They're, they're, there's not a conflict here. So how does that work out? Well, what we have here is a different definition. I mean, but where we do here is what does the word faith mean? And for most of us think this is a problem we often have with people um, is just if I don't, uh, for example, I have, I have to respond to God's, uh, to God's word. Faith doesn't just believe something is true. I can believe something is true, but I have to act upon it in the sense I'm, you know, I have to, uh, saving faith. We often, the most, uh, we talk about saving faith. Remember we say, Mm -hmm. so what saving faith is, faith is more than believing what God is saying true. It's we're acting upon it. And so I don't mean actions like works. I'm talking about simply we trust. Faith produces trust. You know, we Mm -hmm. walk, we begin walking in trust with God. That's what we talk about. What do you do when you have, you know, the most evangelical among us saying, you know, like the uh, four spiritual truths or something. What do you invite Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? (laughs) Yeah. So it's more than believing he died for me. It means he has to be your Lord. You know, something changes. So with Paul, the word faith implies not just intellectual faith, that I know something is true, but that I also decide to walk in a relationship of trust. And that gives rise to the fruits of the Spirit. So in Paul, faith always gives rise to the fruits of the Spirit. Always. If we don't have fruits of the Spirit, it means we, you know, that we're fooling ourselves. So uh, when he talks about works, he's talking about specifically works of the law, not doing good things, not earning your salvation. He's talking about the laws of Moses. You know, it's, you're not by being circumcised or something isn't what saves you. Mm-hmm. Now what James does, James uses faith in the very limited sense of intellectual belief. That's why he says, well, the, the devil believes and trembles. That doesn't save him. So he also is trying to distinguish between um, between intellect, you know, intellectual and, and walking in trust. And uh, so for him, the word faith is used to mean purely intellectual thing. And he, what he tries to work, is he's talking about the fruits of the Spirit. So the works he's talking about isn't the works of the law. Like earlier on, he's saying it's helping the poor, these guys. These are the fruits of the Spirit. So Paul talks about faith leads to fruits of the Spirit, meaning faith is walking in trust, leads to fruits of the Spirit. James says, well, faith is a good step towards faith, in the sense of intellectual belief is a good step towards actually walking in trust, which is, it, it produces fruits of the Spirit. Right. Okay, so his, the word works for James means fruits of the Spirit. So that's okay, why so James says it's this, it's the difference between is my faith alive or dead? He basically compares uh, faith to a corpse, to a body or a corpse. They look the same. You know, if you just look at some, uh, see someone lying down there, you say, gee, is that a living person or is that just a corpse? And he said, you know, the thing about living people is they breathe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, that's, how, that's a pretty good sign. You know, he's saying basically it's live faith versus dead faith. He says the body apart from, from breath, spirit, spirit is breath, again, in Hebrew and, and Greek, the body apart from, is dead. So faith, he's saying just intellectual belief apart from fruits of the spirit, you know, is, is dead. So the right. point is they're basically saying the same thing, is that Paul uses the faith in a broader sense. So he uses faith to mean, I believe this is true. Jesus died for me, and therefore I make him my Lord and Savior. Okay. Yeah. And he says that, and how do I know that? It produces the fruits of the Spirit. New life. Sure. And sure. he uses works in a technical term. as He was arguing that people said you have to follow the law to be saved. You have to be circumcised. You have to keep the Sabbath. James is right. saying faith in our more limited modern sense. Faith is I actually believe something is true or false. Right. And that's why he's the one who says, well, the devil believes in that sense. 
But to him, the fruits of the Spirit, Paul talks about, are he, what he calls works. He means producing something. Something comes of that, the Lordship of Christ in our life. And so they're saying the same thing. So he's basically saying, when he uses the word faith, he's saying just to, just to intellectually believe and not to give yourself to the Lord is like a corpse. Got it. Got you got to be a live body, not a dead one to be saved. Right, right. So, okay, so Paul, when he says faith, he's talking about the whole movement of believing in Christ, coming into relationship with him, and that producing the fruits of the Spirit as opposed to ritual works. But James is James is more zoomed in to a potential disconnect between believing in Christ and then not going and producing the fruits of the spirit. So he's, he, so, so for, for James, James is more zoomed into the life of the believer. Uh, and, and Paul is talking about, uh, faith, uh, the, the whole movement of faith in the new covenant, as opposed to, uh, ritual works of the law. Yeah. And also this is natural. You think of James, very Jewish audience. Uh, because in the Jewish world, we've always believed in the one God, we'd say, right? If you were a Jew, you'd say, we've always believed in the one God. The idea of yeah, intellectually yeah. believing in God is a, is a no-brainer. Everyone who's Jewish believes that. Whereas this is a brand new thing for pagans coming in. You know, they think it's a big deal that they sure. believe these kind of things. That's no new thing. The real question here <laughs> is, you know, hey, big deal. You believe in the so one he's God. Kinda, so he's so this is this is Jewish wisdom for Gentile newbies. They they're coming in and he's kind of listen. We've believed in the one God for a really long time, and look, there's 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 some wisdom that I ought to share with you. About, well, I think it might be really following him. Well, I think it might be more for Jews saying you know that you know oh, you okay. might think that just because you intellectually accept Jesus as a Jewish Messiah, that's got to produce something. I mean, it has to be a walk in trust. Okay. Simply saying, oh, I look at these things. Yes, I guess he is the Messiah. Uh-huh. No, it has to be more like we look traditionally in evangelical terms about about Lord and Savior. It has to be a walk and trust with the Lordship of Christ, if, yeah, which produces yeah. fruits of the Spirit. Just knowing he's the Messiah won't get you anywhere. Sure, I'm, sure. Every, every devil in the New Testament seems to know that. He's the Messiah. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the things, one of the main ways that James, or one of the main, like, let's say, tests that, James gives for live faith is your is the disposition toward the poor yes um, and the rich and how you how you treat the poor and and the rich so talk about that how how does James want us as Christians uh, to be in, to, to to live with the poor yeah this is a big deal uh, with with James because he's saying it's a this is James version of the beatitude. You know, normally the Beatitudes were meant to be shocking because the term I, we talked about the Beatitudes, we'd say it's basically losers. In worldly terms, they tend to be the losers, the people who don't seem to have things working out for them. And he said, those are the winners. That's what Paul, you know, Jesus says, blessed, happy. These are the winners. And the first thing he starts saying, you know, the poor should be delighted, you know, and the rich should be humiliated because, you know, the poor, you know, the, the poor and the rich are the exact opposite of what you would think. Instead of, this is very un-Jewish, you're thinking, instead of thinking richness is a sign of God's favor, and he's saying, no, actually in the world, very often, the rich and the poor, the poor are the ones who are closer to God rather than the rich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And he says, one of the things yeah. we have to do about this, even those who believe that, we tend to treat people based on social class issues, which involve money and things. Think about that. A lawyer comes into a church or something dressed like this. You know, we tend to respect this, you know, a person worthy of respect. 
you know, hey, come out of this pew, everybody comes visit. We, someone looks quasi-homeless comes into the church. We might be nice, but we treat them differently. And he says, we shouldn't be treating, this is a violation of the law of love. For us, the difference in class, social class, you know, somebody coming in really should make no difference. And sometimes we can find mm-hmm. ourselves saying, this is an important person. She's a doctor. <laughs> right, yeah, right, it's such right. a thing as opposed to, well, this guy's sort of a loser, you know, in human terms. Right. Yeah. Nice. We want to be nice to him and things. But he said, that's partialities. That's not the law of love. So it's so it's basically a warning against against partiality that we want to be treating poor and rich alike uh, with the same measure of love that Christ asks of us. But then being, he does a wonderful job of explaining, well, why should the rich, what's wrong with being rich? And he says, here's the specific problem. He says, first of all, I use an example for this I like is, is sadly at the end of the Second World War, they found some prisoner of war camps, for example, where people were like human sticks. They weren't death camps, but you know, a lot of people died. And, and people say, well, why were these people starving and things and without medicine and the like? And they'd say, well, the end of the war was a tough time for everybody. But one of the things that would really <laughs> yeah. w- was bad at the Nuremberg trials is they opened and they had pictures of them opening warehouses filled with supplies, Red Cross supplies that had been sent to the prisoners that they were just using to sell on the black market. So he's right, saying that's what right. your riches are like. You know, the, the Greeks said you don't know whether somebody is thrifty until you see how they eventually spend the money. Saving money isn't thrift. Thrift is using it well. Mm-hmm. So his base, he says, piled up treasures, he said, will be evidence against you at the judgment. So yeah, rather than saying, yeah. hey, smart guy, look at how he saved that money. He said, why did you spend that? There were people who needed that. Those are like those Red Cross supplies. There right. were people yeah, starving exactly. here and you sat on a mountain of supplies. <laughs> so he says, first of all, the trouble to the rich is, remember, there'll be evidence against you. It's, it's how you use your riches. You'll be responsible for how you used them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then he talks something. I, I like a, the, a Roman writer called Seneca, who's extraordinarily quotable. Being an old guy, I can tell our listeners, Here's my, one of my favorite quotes from Seneca. He said, greed in old age is like taking on supplies at the end of a trip. Isn't that great? Yeah. <laughs> you don't take on supplies at the end of the trip. And he says, yeah. he said, you've laid up treasures in the last days. Mm, mm, he said, this mm. is crazy. Why would you be laying up treasures now? Right, right, right. So the, again, the, the you don't want to put yourself into a position where you're looking for and storing up things for yourself at the moment where you could use them for others. God will judge us on how we've used our gifts. It's like those people with the talents, they came back. Well, I invested them. Well, show me the return on my investment and saying, well, there's a great pile right here. Well, dig it up. (laughs) Yeah. And the last thing he says is, you know, the real risk with the really rich is he says, it's not certainly not true of everyone, but there's a real risk that we cut corners, you know, that they're acquired at the price of injustice. So uh, unjust gain and and uh, graft and things like that. Those were a problem in the ancient world. Oh, Lord. I guess. Not just I, it was the social, <laughs> but also exploiting people. We, we flatter ourselves. We look at slavery and things, and it's horrible. You know, in the ancient world, very different from North American slavery, but it was still a terrible thing. But we still have companies and things that have things made by slave labor in China and things, and it doesn't seem to bother people. You know, sweatshops sure, in the third sure. world. Uh, these are These are people, real people. You know, and sure. we keep prices low by going out to people who are simply exploited. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Okay, so ancient problem, modern problem. Great. Okay, so so um, so tell me what else he talks about. First of all, this is one that uh, 
gave me pause before becoming a priest. And that was, he actually doesn't really encourage you to become a teacher. <laughs> he's kind of a, a tough, he's kind of got a bit of a tough message for that. Why, well, why does he talk about it? It's like way? telling a kid who wants to be a firefighter and saying, that's really great. But the kids would you really see it's the, it's the, the, incredible stuff you know the the uh the fire machines the red the you know all this kind yeah, of thing it's the yeah. engines the sirens the excitement they see then saying you know son or you say your daughter i mean uh you're saying you know if you want to be a firefighter they have to go to fires you could get killed you have to understand this is serious stuff it's not just the exciting stuff you see you could get killed and he's saying he said don't let many become teachers he said first of all you'll be judged more strictly if you're a teacher you'll be seriously expected to practice what you preach yeah. yeah. And the other thing he says, so he said, watch out on this. You're taking responsibility. It's an extra responsibility. You'll be judged by a stricter standard. Rightly so. You'll be judged by a stricter standard. You know, it's sort of funny. I'm a CPA. And one of the things that go against me is I'm presumed as a matter of law, if I go into court on a tax issue, I cannot plead ignorance. <laughs> it's a matter of law. I cannot plead ignorance. <laughs> and so much. I actually put myself, you know, I can't say, well, I didn't know, even if it's true. I mean, the point is that, you know, I'm, you know, de jure, I'm, I'm considered to be an informed party. And right. so it's like this. He said, you know, you have to be careful. You're changing your status. And he also says, here's a real problem. He says, you really have to be careful what you say when you're a teacher. You're speaking for God. You have to be careful what you're saying. And he said, controlling sure. your tongue is the hardest thing anyone could ever do. This is where we have this thing about controlling the tongue is really, really tough. So before you start being a teacher, you know, you know, this requires you to control your tongue. Are you really up to that? Right. So it puts a special emphasis in your life, a special responsibility in your life for things that are even for everyone difficult. Yeah. So just be aware of what you're getting into. And he says of all the things people control, we all know we all like males and things. We all have uh, healthy sexuality and things, but we can bring that under control. He says, rare is the person who can really control their tongue. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He says like a fire just setting everything on fire. He said the tongue is really, really dangerous. He says hardly anybody w w wins at that. A lot of people don't yeah. steal. A lot of people are sexually pure and things. But wow, people who control their tongue, now that's uncommon. That's a bit of an outdated virtue these days, isn't it? Oh, like, Lord. I, I, don't, I don't feel like I've heard a whole lot of, a, a lot of praise for the, you know, for the, the, the introvert or whoever who just sort of, out of temperament or or out of uh, habit just doesn't say something or decides to not enter into the fray or 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 hold back you know instead it's like you know like like, like silence is violence or whatever well uh, it's like this right? there's no filter yeah well the internet age is um it, it presents new challenges for the bride or it gives a lot of outlets for the tongue that we haven't had before so also in english when i was a kid the word dumb had a regular meaning. It was regularly used to describe people who could not speak. That's its original meaning. Right. And so a common joke when speaking of the Bible was saying, you know, the miracle that Jesus causes the dumb to speak. And they said the real miracle would get to have them shut up. <laughs> <laughs> to get yeah. the dumb to yeah. stop speaking is the real challenge. <laughs> That's the challenge, right? Right. Okay. Well, 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 more on, on, on bridling the tongue then, I guess. Uh, but he also talks a bit about, um, conflict, yeah. conflict between people, you know, and that's, I mean, that's something that's certainly a hot topic nowadays. What does he say about this it? This is great for us in, uh, who have ministry in church. 
He said, normally what we immediately want to do is to go to the point of how do I manage this conflict between people, which we certainly have to do. But he says, you have to remember external strife reflects internal strife. Basically, people who are happy and within themselves are not the problem. Unhappy mm-hmm. people cause mm-hmm. strife. He says, what causes quarrels and fights among you? He says, isn't it this? Your passions are at war within you. So he's saying that strife between people is a manifestation. People who cause troubles uh, have troubles with them. It's a manifestation of a civil war. The outside wars, there's a deeper civil war going on. He says, what is it? He says, the cause of internal strife, he says, is desire and covetousness. He said, you desire and you don't have. That's covetousness. He says, so you murder. All right, you know, it's, uh, you enter, uh, he says, you covet and can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Hmm. So he's saying, hmm. we can't be putting a Band-Aid on a tumor. He's saying, we think it's just a matter, and there's always a place for that, of course, trying to manage people, but ultimately, real peace comes from if people are at peace with themselves. You know, this will, most often, it's when people are unhappy themselves, when their covetousness, desire, and things, we're out for our own, is other people get in the way, and that's what causes the strife. For example, when we have people fighting over who does what in the church or something, it's not because people are fighting over wanting to serve, it's because they want to get recognition or something like this. You know, it's always about, it's about me. People don't fight about others, they fight about me. Yeah. It's the me factor. If we deal with the me factor, we're going to have a lot, he says, says, external strife reflects internal strife. There's a lot of tremendous wisdom to that. Uh, Yeah, that's that's certainly borne out in... In, in my experience as well. Yeah, that's uh, that, that's a really good because, yeah, you know, you, you can just sort of manage, do be an expert in conflict management. But at the end of the day, if people are if if people's desires are misplaced, desires are, the, are being frustrated, then you're going to continue to have have quarrels. Yeah, it comes from within. Well, I could tell you from my I was a manager in my job for 20, 25 people for over 30 years. And one thing an early mentor told me when I started doing this, and it's so true, he said, no amount of skill and talent can make up for bad attitude. <laughs> he said, no, these people will wreck a whole team. He said, they're, they're hopeless. Yeah. I mean, there's, they will constantly make everything, you know, they're just endless. They're black holes of problems. And they said, mm-hmm. tell me, you know, how talented this person, oh, she's fabulous, or he's great. You know, they have such skills. But if they're constantly poking fights, you know, and these kind of things, it's just going to wreck the whole team. It'll wreck everything. Yeah. 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 No amount so of talent again, makes up for, for bad attitude. Yeah, yeah. So so once again, you know, ancient problems, present problems, people people are people, right? Oh, Lord. <laughs> um, so, okay, so there's another part of James where James is, is talking about uh, you know, friendship with the world. Um, let's let's go into that for for a minute. What what does he mean by uh, warning against friendship with the world? Because in a sense, though, Christians are supposed to be you know for people in the world, right? Absolutely. You know, um, so so what does he mean by that? Well, he gives a beautiful example. You know, you're a married man. I'm a married man. We want to be nice to people and things, but you know, we are married. And he compares that worldliness is like the difference between having an affair or flirting and stuff as opposed to, uh, he says, you adulterous people. He's saying, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So he can be, and he says, uh, the scripture says, he, speaking of God, yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. So he's saying, look, the trouble with worldliness, it means we're not really being faithful to God. And you can't have a happy marriage when you're cheating. He's basically, that's what it is, worldliness. 
really getting into the world's value means you're cheating on God. Basically, you remember at a wedding, unlike anywhere else, normally you say the more love, the better. Everyone has that talk. You're a father of more, more than one child now. When the children are a certain age, you have to say, because you have a little brother or sister doesn't mean we'll love you any the less. Okay. But there's right, one, that love just expands. There's only there's one kind of love that's not true of marriage. We say in the marriage ceremony, forsaking all others. So he's warning us the trouble of worldliness as opposed to loving people in the world is worldliness means we decide to have an affair and ongoing affairs. <laughs> and yeah. he says, you can't do this. Worldliness is you can't, you have to be all in for me. Well, what does he mean by worldliness or friendship with the world? Like what, what kind of, what specific, what kind of attitudes he's talking about? Well, he's talking about God not being, I like to call it, it's from an old time, we used to call it a fundamental option. In our lives, we have what's our fundamental priorities. At the end of the day, how do we make decisions? And like in your family, when you marry, you say, this is the one. My life is going to, in human terms, going to revolve around you, you and the kids. There's no question, no matter what work, anything else, at the end of the day, you win. And you know that. And happy, you, this, you're my spouse. You know, you're my kids. You win. And worldliness is when we try to say, well, I love you, but I love this too. And I, it's a balancing act. And saying, well, there is balancing, but no, no, that there can never be any doubt. Worldliness is when we basically look at the world basically like other people do. We try to balance God and we try to... It's like we try to, like in business, where you try to work your schedules out together. Hey, how uh -huh, can we, uh -huh. we need to make, you know, as opposed to saying you are my schedule. <laughs> Got it. This is not a give and take between God and the world. I'll this tell you this, when I worked out there is when my boss wanted something, he always got on the schedule. It wasn't, I guess can't work again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I never had true. any doubt as to what was important. I had a special file. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. my thing, a special thing. No, these are, this is for the boss. You know, this is a special case. Yeah. Okay. So there, there's another part in the book where it's a, it's kind of a puzzling saying, but he talks about, you know, if you're going off to another town to do some business, um, you say we will go and do this or that, uh, and he says you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live and and do this or that. Um, that that sounds a little petty, like. But what does he mean by by that admonishment? Well, it's really very helpful because one thing we often forget, and it's not so much the word the saying, although actually is raised in the way I actually do that. I'll say you next Thursday, God willing, and that's. I have noticed that you do that you for religious reasons, but it really does remind me of something. I'm not suggesting people that the the essence of the teaching is this: is we. Uh, for example, one that we think people often try to find security in money and we're simply God promises he'll take care of us, but he promises we'll be day by day. You know, we'd like to have the security knowing, seeing it's already there. <laughs> he said, you're going to yeah. just have to trust me. And he's saying, you know, it really helps us to know when we look at our life to live a good life is to realize that never forget the fact, you know, in a real sense that everything is contingent in a beautiful way. Oh, God will provide, but he'll do it day by day. And so, you know, this, by being always aware of that fact, can make us more open to seeing the working of providence. Mm -hmm. That's how it works mm -hmm. for me. I really believe in providence. I often believe, for, that's what I mean by this, is that often God interrupts my plans. You know, as an old man, I can look back at my life and saying, I've seen God more in the doors he's closed than the ones he's opened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's But true. being aware of the fact that everything is contingent ultimately is, that's, um, his will is my will. And I don't know that perfectly. So I'm saying, yeah, here's what I suppose is going to happen. But again, I, I'm, everything I do is subject to his will. Gratefully. Mm. I'm glad of that. Mm. Everything is subject to his will. That's my plan. But yeah. whatever, but ultimately my plan is God's plan. <laughs> 
I feel like that's a kind of wisdom that the secular world can recognize as well, because, you know, they always say, uh, I think it, this is a military saying, though, right? Like, what's the f- the first thing to die in battle is your plan. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, that people people recognize that that's how life is, and you've got to pivot. Um, Christians, for Christians, we recognize that it's it's God that ultimately holds everything. Um, but yeah, I I I I like that phrase for that for that reason. So we don't confuse our understanding of the plan of God with the real thing. You know, we can approximate what we think would happen, but we never know. And so we have to, we're always open to the fact that no matter what I think, I'm not going to be shocked that God's plan might be different. And then we say, blessed right. be God. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, also, he, he also talks about, uh, he gives us a little bit on, on avoiding oaths again. And this is something that Jesus says as well. Um, but we, tell me a little bit about you letting your yes be yes and your no be no and not going on and on about... Um, about like swearing on things or making oaths. What's really at stake there, though? Yeah. The, the heart of this is that we don't want to have, you know, two standards of truth because integrity means what you see is what you get. You know, the inside and the outside match. So what you see is what you get. And so what we're saying here is the trouble when people would take oaths would be like this. In this, we're, talk- we're not talking about cordos. We're talking about people in the regular life saying, oh, no, no, really, I swear to you, Alex, I swear to you, this is true. It means that yeah. we have two levels of truth. Basically, if I swear, I must be really serious about it, whereas I can be more or less about it with everything else. And he's saying a Christian's word should be, it shouldn't make any difference whether a Christian is under oath. There should be no- nothing I'd have to sure. change. It's sort of like we say with people that, you know, if we speak the truth in love, then I could speak in a way that I wouldn't be embarrassed to find out anybody heard what I'd said. Right, right, right. Yeah. So it's it's being reflexively honest, I'd say. Yeah, that we right? we, like, we have only we only speak the truth. He says let your yes be yes, let your no be no. That we speak the truth. That doesn't mean we can't keep our keep silence, we have this discretion and things, but the point is when we speak, we speak the truth. Right. What right. you know, and that that is important for our personal integrity. Once we start sure. lying, it fundamentally compromises who we are. Pope Paul II, uh, not rather Pope John Paul II, said one of the hardest things of being raised in a communist country was that you had to lie all the time. And it fundamentally compromises our ability to say the truth. I mean, you had to always say, we live in the best place in the world. We're so happy. You know, we have so much, you know, when we, everyone knew this was untrue. But you had to say all these things. And it, it fundamentally compromises our integrity when we're used to saying things that we know aren't true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, so James also talks about prayer as well. So what does prayer mean to James? Well, his point is that everything should bring us back to God. Our power comes from our connection with God. Like in the famous thing where he talks about someone being sick, he says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing. Is anyone among you sick? Call the elders of the church and pray over him. So the answer is always to get closer to God is we don't we want everything of whether it's sadness or joy to always bring us closer to God. It's like it's funny think about with your parents. If God's a parent, when you're with your kid little kid when you're really sad, you run to your parents. When you're really happy, you run to your parents. And he's saying yeah, that's yeah. the important thing is and, the, and there's a power to prayer. He says it really does change things. He talks about the example of Elijah. He said the prayer of a righteous man avails much. God really listens to prayer. Mm-hmm. It makes a difference. It's not a pep talk to ourselves. God hears. So sometimes we take prayer as just a pep talk. That's not going to change anything. No, God listens to prayer. It's, it's God's credit card. He's given all of us this line of credit. 
That's why Jesus said, if you just ask, you'd receive. Everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. To everyone who knocks, it will be opened. So what are the sorts of things that James wants us to pray for? Well, very specifically, he tells us early on in the epistle, he said we should pray for wisdom. I mean, wisdom yeah. and what wisdom is, remember, wisdom is like logos. Logos is the Greek, the Greek word for the, the word, Christ is the word. But it comes from, that's mm-hmm. where we get our word logical from. It's this underlying plan under the, you know, God's plan for the world. You know, God, how God's right. made the world. Chachma, you know, wisdom in Hebrew is the same thing. It's this, that's why we have the book of Proverbs. You know, it's this underlying, it's the basic structure of the world, the way God, so we're really to play to our align our will with God's. That's what wisdom is. Wisdom is aligning our will with the divine plan. Being on God's page. So it's about drawing near to... Drawing near to God. To the source of that wisdom. Yeah. And then there's a, there's a, you know, we, we, we hear a lot about evangelism, about going out and making disciples of unbelievers. But in this book, there's a special, um, I think, a, a special recommendation to actually restoring people to the Lord, which I, I've always found really helpful in James, right? Mm-hmm. Like he, so, so... What is what's important to James about not just making new disciples but restoring people that have fallen away? First of all, it's it's comforting to know that that's even possible. <laughs> now James says, "My right. brothers, if anyone among you wanders from, among you wanders from the truth, and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins." So the the point he's making is it's like the Marines; they have the thing. No man left behind. Yeah. Is yeah. as Christians, it's so tempting to say someone has really committed a terrible sin and we just leave him. He's behind. You know, he clearly is. And this is never how Jesus felt. Look at Peter. Peter yeah. not only isn't left behind, he becomes, you know, he becomes the leader of the disciples. So the yes. point is we'd never leave. And this is so important. This is the same Jesus who told us, is there anyone who's a shepherd here has 99 sheep and one hundred sheep and one one's away won't go after that sheep. So he says, that's what we're continuing that mission of the good shepherd. We don't let a single, every sheep is too valuable to let a single one wander away. We never give up. We always want, we always go after them. And he says, I promise you, like he said, talk, remember Jesus talks about this great rejoicing. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And he's saying, that's how it is. He said, I'm telling you, he's going to save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Well, great. Is there anything else you have for us on the book of James before we go? Yeah, I think instead of trying to look, so many people have been put off by the idea of faith versus works, as we explained, is here's how James and and, and Paul perfectly, he's emphasizing like Paul the fruit saying, remember folks, is our faith is a living thing. Never forget that. It's so easy to have this head-heart divide, right? That that our faith is never something just in our head. Our faith is bringing forth fruit in our lives. Just never forget that. It's so easy to get really wrapped up in theology and things that that isn't faith. I mean, it's always the whole, all of us is under the Lordship of Jesus, our head and our heart, and right. he's saying it's both. So look at it that way, and it's perfectly consistent with Paul. You know, it's always those fruits. Remember, it's fruit. It's, don't argue, well, if my head's in the right place. No, it's all of you being in the right place. Faith yeah. is both, and that is what faith is. You know, a living faith means head and heart and my whole life is in the same place.
Well, thanks so much, Father Stephen. And thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back again next week for more on liturgy, sacrament, and the great tradition of Christian worship. Thanks for listening.